I want to transition into our next time through some prayer. Father, thank you for this opportunity to be free uh, yet another year. And uh, to think it's been 240 years since we declared our independence. And um, I think too often we, uh, we think little about that. We don't consider that. And we sure don't consider the things it takes to remain as a free people, free to worship, free to speak, free to think, free to write, free to have property rights, those things that we, we so often take for granted, God. And so I, I pray on the, this, this uh, occasion of Fourth of July weekend that it would be more than just firecrackers, um, grill outs, and, um, and other things that we traditionally associate with Fourth of July, but that we would see the freedom that we have here in the United States and other people around the world, but that specifically here. And then also, more importantly, the freedom we have in Christ. You've set us free. Thank you for that, Jesus. We pray for our officials, and we pray for uh, the, the mayor as well as the city council here in Indian Trail and the sheriff's office, that they would see themselves as stewards. They would see themselves as um, servants of you, God, and that they, are, uh, they would not exceed their bounds, but that they would fulfill their duties. We pray that on the state level with our, our representatives as well as our governor and on the national level with our congressmen, senators, and our president and the Supreme Court, God, that they would feel the weight of those responsibilities, that they have roles that are heavy as well as limited, God, and that there would be balance of power, even as we will look into the Scriptures today and talk about unruly power, unchecked power, that thank you for the, some of the wisdom of setting up our government the way it was, God. It's not perfect, but thank you for the wisdom that was employed there. So, God, um, I, I do pray that we would be cognizant people that would not forget. We would set up Ebenezer's of your glory in our life. In your name, amen. If you would stand, we're going to be reading out of the Old Testament, continuing with 1 Samuel, and specifically when we're 1 Samuel 15. It's, uh, I, I skipped around. I've got different passages uh, that you can try to follow in your Bible or up front, but I'm going to read verses 1 through 3, verse 9, verse 13 through 24, and 32 through 35. So stay up if you read along. And Samuel said to Saul, The Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people Israel. Now therefore, listen to the words of the Lord. Thus says the Lord of hosts, I have noted what Amalek did to Israel in opposing them on the way when they came up out of Egypt. Now go and strike Amalek and devote to destruction all that they have. Do not spare them, but kill both man and woman, child and infant, ox and sheep, camel and donkey. And Saul and the people spared Agag and the best of the sheep and the oxen and the fatted calves and the lambs and all that was good and would not utterly destroy them. All that was despised and worthless, 
they do, devoted to destruction. Verse 13. And Samuel said to Saul, and Saul said to him, Blessed be you to the Lord. I have performed the commandment of the Lord. And Samuel said, What then is this bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen that I hear? Saul said, They have brought them from uh, the Malachites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen to sacrifice to the Lord your God, and the rest we have devoted to destruction. Then Samuel said to Saul, Stop! I will tell you what the Lord said to me this night. And he said to him, Speak. And Samuel said, Though you're little in your own eyes, are you not the head of the tribes of Israel? The Lord anointed you king over Israel, and the Lord sent you on a mission and said, Go, devote to destruction the sinners, the Amalekites, and fight against them until they are consumed. Why then did you not obey the voice of the Lord? Why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? And Saul said to Samuel, I've obeyed the voice of the Lord. I've gone on the mission of which the Lord sent me. I brought Agag, the king of Amalekite, and I've devoted the Amalekites to destruction. But the people took the spoil, sheep and oxen, the best of the things devoted to destruction, to sacrifice to the Lord your God in Gilgal. And Samuel said, has the Lord as great delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice, and to listen than the fat of rams. For rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as the iniquity and idolatry. Because you have rejected the word of the Lord, he has also rejected you from being king." Saul said to Samuel, I've sinned, I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord and your words because I feared and obeyed, I feared the people and obeyed their voice. Verse 32, then Samuel said, bring here to me Agag, king of the Amalekites. And Agag came to him cheerfully. Agag said, surely the bitterness of death is past. And Samuel said, as your sword has made women childless, so your mother will be childless among women. And Samuel hacked Agag to pieces before the Lord in Gilgal. Then Samuel went to Ramah, and Saul went to his house in Gibeah of Saul. And Samuel did not see Saul again until the day of his death. But Samuel grieved over Saul, and the Lord regretted that he had made Saul king over Israel. This is the word of the Lord for the people, Lord. You may be seated. Well, the, term, the, the sermon title is Obey and Other Four-Letter Words. And uh, that is not a, a, we don't like to hear the word obey oftentimes. Um, this kind of came to me that many of y'all know that my family had opportunity to, to be in France for some time and study French and, and mingle and be in there in, in the school system for several months and inevitably... Um, we know that human nature is curious about bad things. You know, even the Proverbs say that stolen bread tastes sweeter, right? And that's no different languages. And we've all had that experience when we took language class in high school. One of the first things we wanted to know were bad words in that language, right? And so this was no different in France. So a lot of the French kids came to 
my daughter and the other American girls that were there and asked them, what are some bad words we can learn? Uh, that was one of the first things they said. And so uh, McCray said, you know, I, you know I'm, I'm not going to go there. And they kept asking her and asking her. Finally, she said, yeah, I know one that's the worst word you could ever say to somebody in English. They go, what? And then she went on and didn't tell them and, and built the suspense. And finally, they came to her and said, you've got to tell us what this word is. She goes, okay, I'll tell you. The worst thing you can call anybody in English is toothpick. And they said, toothpick? Of course, they said it with a French nasally accent, toothpick. And so... Uh, so that whole school, the whole, the three months that she was there, she heard kids calling each other toothpick at that point, thinking that they were calling each other a bad four-letter word, toothpick. And eventually someone came to her and said, wait, toothpick is just something that you pick your teeth with. She goes, it's, it's in the Urban Dictionary. And they're like, oh, okay. All right. So I fully, I fully expect that whenever we ever visit France again, that at the highest levels of government, they will be calling with all the rancor, political rancor that goes on, they'll be calling each other toothpick not knowing where that came from. And so I think, I think what we have here, other bad words that, that I'm going to talk about today, that are one is obey. And so if you're keeping, if you're keeping an outline, the, the, I have three four-letter words. One is obey. One is fear. And another one is idle. So we're going to talk about obedience we're going to talk about fear, and we're going to talk about idolatry. So if you're keeping notes. Um, we don't like this word. Oftentimes, as a, as a, we, we feel like it's uh, condescending, like a parent speaking to a child, or a shepherd calling the sheep to obey, to keep in. What's interesting, those are the metaphors that God uses to describe us, right? We're the child, we're the sheep, and he's the shepherd, and he's the parent, and we're called to obey because he knows better. I want to give you a little perspective um, that Samuel, as you know, the the players in this are Samuel, who's the prophet, the age-old prophet in Israel, who's been there from the very beginning um, of whenever they transitioned from uh, prophets to kings, um, or this first king. And the other player is Saul, who is the first and newest king of Israel. And so here you see in verse 1, Samuel's given Saul a little perspective. And he says this. He says, the Lord sent me to anoint you king over his people. Now, I want to highlight a few things there. First, in this perspective, he says, the Lord sent me. And so if you notice, and periodically, Samuel will come and Saul has to get his orders from Samuel. There's this checks and balance between the king or executive branch as well as this legislative or maybe judicial branch of of Samuel. And so he's saying, in a sense, the Lord talks to me and now I'm talking to you. So there's some checks and balances there. It's to give Saul some perspective. Also, he says, I've come to anoint you. That word anoint is to bestow. It's also the same word oftentimes for Messiah, for one who saves. And it's to give, again, Saul perspective that he was from the smallest tribe in all of Israel, and God brought him up and anointed him and said, it's not because you were from a big tribe. It's not because you were more clever, wiser than everybody. It's because I anointed you. That's why you're in the position. Again, he's trying to give him perspective, to give him right humility. 
Another perspective he gives them is he says, if you look in verse 1, he says that you're king over his people. So he's saying, these aren't your people. These are God's people. And we see this theme, God's possession of a people, running all the way. We even see it in the New Testament in Titus. Uh, Titus 2, it says that um, the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, teaching us to renounce irreligion um, and to purify for himself a people of his own possession. So we see in the New Testament in Titus 2 that, that, that Jesus' desire is to have his own people. And that is a biblical theme of God constantly gathering his people like a, like a hen gathers the chicks, her chicks, and separates his people from other people. That's his kingdom. But he's trying to give Samuel, the prophet, is trying to give King Saul perspective so he doesn't become too prideful. And we see that he does. Another thing, if you, if you notice there, um, it says in these directions, in verse 3, it says, Now go and strike uh, um, Amalek and devote to destruction all they have. Do not spare anything. But uh, earlier in verse 1, he says, Now therefore listen to the words of the Lord. That's a strange phrase in verse 1. He says, Listen to the words of the Lord. Again, this, this reminds me of being a parent. My kids are doing the ADD thing and going crazy, and I'm trying to get their attention. I'm saying, look at me. Listen to my words. When you hear my voice, you should stop what you're doing and listen. When you hear Dad's voice, tune out all other voices and listen. That's exactly what God is saying here. He's saying, listen to the words I'm about to say. And it's interesting when he says, listen to the words, the, the word um, that he's trying to say is um, call ram. When he says devote to destruction, in, in, in Hebrew it's call ram. Now the reason I bring that up is because anytime someone heard that word, it was used very rarely in Hebrew. And it was used when it meant to destroy something. It, it didn't mean save anything. It mean, meant devote to destruction kill it, throw it away, right? And so in construction, whenever we have to remediate something, if something's gotten wet, a flood has come in, or they've gotten water in someone's house, and we're trying to remediate because there's mold and there's water damage, first thing we do is we come in and we start to mark the things based on how porous they are, uh, mark the things that are going to be cleaned, that are clean, that they haven't been tampered with or they haven't been tainted, and then the third, what is going to be thrown out? And inevitably, whenever sheetrock gets wet, it's devoted to destruction. You bag it up in double bags, throw it away, and then you're not going to reuse it. If it's steel or, or wood, it can be cleaned. It, it can be recycled. But there's certain things when you go into a construction site, a demolition site, that are going to be devoted to destruction. You know it. That's the word that's being used here. He's saying, there's these people that I hate, and you need to carry out my orders to devote to destruction. And he was very clear. He said not just the men. He said the women, the infants, the children, the animals. He even listed the kind of animals. Very clear there. He's saying, listen to my words. He's used nine times there, this word of, of sound or voice. Well, obedience. Um, 
Oftentimes, again, a child, when you ask them to do something, you say, go obey my voice, go do whatever I said. Sometimes the first thing, the response will be, why? And what, what do you say back to them? You don't need to know why. Just do it, right? So sometimes you will tell them why. But oftentimes you want your children to obey you because you want them to trust you, whether they know the reason or not. I want to give you a little bit of the reason of why God was telling Saul to go kill these people. Um, it, it, you can just make a note there, uh, two, two Old Testament passages, Exodus 17 and Deuteronomy 25. Now, Amalek was, was a, a grandson of Esau. Now, if you know who Esau was, there was Jacob and Esau, and Esau God hated. So this is the grandson of Esau that started this people, the Malachites. And the Amalekites, when Israel left Egypt, and they're coming through uh, the Sinai Desert, and they're coming up, and they're coming into the Promised Land, the very first people to attack them were the Malachites. And it says in some passages that they waited uh, and, and attacked their rear, all the stragglers. So they, they, were, they were cowardless, or they, they were cowards. They attacked the stragglers of the Israelites coming through. And so many of y'all know the story of when Moses uh, was up on this mountain, and he, he, whenever he held up his staff, Israel won. And whenever he got tired and kind of fell back, Israel, the, the battle torn, turned against Israel. And, and Joshua was fighting the battle. Well, the people they were fighting were the Malachites. And so we see that in, in Exodus 17, this was the battle that was raging because the Malachites were come and attacking Israel's rear as they're moving through to the promised land, and God hated that. In fact, after the battle, God told Moses, he says, I want you to get a book, and I want you to write this down because I'm, I'm going I'm to take my righteous revenge on these people. And he said in Exodus 17, he says that I will utterly blot out the memory of of Amalekite from under heaven. He didn't say, I'm just going to, uh, we're going to wipe them off. He says, I'm going to utterly blot them out. He said, write it down, and I want you to tell Joshua so he can recite it. It needs to be on the tip of his tongue. Now, I'll tell you, in 2016, this seems pretty um, uh, un, un PC that God is creating a holy war on a certain people, but God has done that. Because, and even when we think that, that, that this is, doesn't seem very politically correct or this is, seems very cruel or unusual, we're putting ourselves in place of judge. But remember that God is the righteous judge. He knows people's hearts. Even when Israel came into the promised land, they created, that he had them wipe out these people because he said that their sin had reached the level, it was time to bring judgment. And the Malachite's sin had reached a level. Now it was time to bring judgment on. And he wanted to use Saul to do that. And that's why he said, don't spare anything. It's all dirty. It's all tainted. It's all like wet sheetrock full of mold. I want to destroy it. I want to wipe it out. So God made a promise back with Moses that said, I'm going to wipe them out. And he wanted Saul to fulfill his promise. That's why he said, listen to my words. He says this, that after, in verse, I think it was verse 20, uh, 22 and 23, when Samuel was admonishing or rebuking Saul, he says, obedience is better than sacrifice. In other words, he was, he was, he was 
rebuking him for thinking that he could have some kind of religious observance and that would smooth over his disobedience. So, so Saul was thinking, I, you know, I'm going I'm to call it audible here. I'm going I'm to leave the king intact because maybe he has some contacts or maybe he has, knows where some other treasure is. He's, he's, worth, he's, he's useful to me. And so I know what God told me, but I'm going to do something different. And we're going to take all the best of the sheep, and we're going to, we're going to use those. Uh, we're going to find out what they did with them a little bit later. But all the rest, I will do what God said. So he was just obeying what was convenient for him. He was not following the words of what God said here. This really is, is what I call the southern fried gospel, right? And that's the gospel in the south, that we believe as, as a culture in the south that we can live like hell most of the week and then go to church on Sunday and it's all right, okay? Now, there's not many people. We ask a lot of people in France if they knew Jesus, and most of them said no. And they weren't embarrassed about it. They were like, no, I don't, I don't know Jesus. I don't love Jesus. But the south, you ask someone, yeah, absolutely. But there's this subtle belief that I can pray a prayer, I can go to church, I can read my Bible, I can do some kind of religious observance, and that's going to assuage my guilt for me not following God in my life. That's not the gospel. That's a lie. That's a perversion. That's exactly what Saul believed. John, 15, John 14, 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you will obey me. You will follow what I say, and that is devotion. That is, shows me you love me versus you making some kind of sacrifice that says you love me. Well, the first four-letter word is obey. The second four-letter word is fear. See, obedience or disobedience really reveals our fears. It really reveals who you're fear, fearful of. Verse 24, look there. It says, so Saul said to Samuel, I have sinned. So finally, after the rebuke, Saul says, you're right, okay, okay, I've sinned, I've transgressed the commandment of the Lord and, and your words. It's interesting, he says they're your words. Uh, he, he's, he's confusing. They're really God's words that Samuel was passing on. But he says, I've transgressed the commandment, which, by the way, the word for commandment there is word or sound. Again, going back to whenever God was saying, listen to the sound of my words. That's the same word here. So you're saying, I've transgressed the sound of the Lord and your words. I've feared the people and obeyed their voice. So there's, there's somewhat of a confession there, but it reveals, it reveals what Saul, was, what was going on in his heart. And so if you look at Saul, and I think Daryl talked about this last week whenever he was going through chapter 14. If you just flip back one chapter, in verse 47, it said, When Saul had taken the kingship over Israel, he fought against all the enemies on every side, against Moab, Ammonites, Edomites, king of Zobah, and against the Philistines. Wherever he turned, he routed them. And he did violently, <clears throat> valiantly and struck the Malachites and delivered Israel out of the hands of those who plundered them. So whenever you look at that, you're like, well, <coughs> Saul was a very valiant warrior. Other places, he's very courageous. He fought bravely. And he did one of the things that God told him to do, which was protect the borders, protect the people. But that's looking just through the lens of being a military hero. 
But see, God looks deeper. He looks in the heart. I want to show you this picture up here, if you put it up there. This is a picture of a house on the right side. Pretty solid, looks well put together. Typical shingles, uh, stucco siding. But the picture on the left is the same house, but looking through an infrared camera. And if you notice, whenever, whatever is blue, the, the cooler colors are just that. It's cool. And the brighter colors are where heat is escaping. And so this really helps you a lot in knowing about how to insulate a house and also looking to see where water intrusion is happening because water is going to be cooler than the surrounding materials. So you can, almost like an x-ray vision, look at something that looks good on the outside and look into it and see what's really going on there. Just beyond what the, the visual eye can see, this is infrared. That is a metaphor for what, how God looks at your heart. Right? So people look at your life and say, well, that's a solid structure. Just like you might look at Saul and say, he's been a solid military king. But then God looks at his heart and says, he disobeyed me. He feared me. He's looking at his motives and he's looking deeper into, into the heart. That's what God does for all of us. It says that even the, even the pitch black is like noonday to him. God sees your motives. He sees what you're fearful of, who you're fearful of. You obey who you fear, and you submit to who you fear. Saul submitted to the voice of the people. He was, there, there's, a, there's a book out there that says, uh, the title is, When People Are Big and God is Small. And that really is a, a disease that all of us have. We care more about what others think than what God thinks. And I know we typically divide people into people pleasers or task-oriented people, but really everybody tends to think of, of people, they're, they're what they think of them or what they think of themselves greater than what God thinks. There was this guy who, um, who used to disciple me years ago in Greensboro, and he said, Blair, until you really understand that you want to live life without God, You'll never understand your sin. And that's resonated with me for years. And it's, it, it, every time I look into that, it becomes truer and truer. That I try to live life without God. I try to live it more in a horizontal to please myself or please others around me. That's exactly what Saul was doing here. So the first four-letter word is obey. And it reveals the second four-letter word, which is fear. Obedience reveals our fears. The last four-letter word is idol. Your obedience reveals your idols. Um, look at verse 23. In Samuel's rebuke of Saul, he says, for rebellion is, is as the sin of divination and presumption as the iniquity of idolatry. That word idolatry is teraphim uh, in, in, in Hebrew. And it literally is, sometimes it's a cloth, a piece of cloth that has something on it. Or it was that little household idol that looked like a, uh, a person. And it was used to consult the spirits. So it would ask questions, almost like the old eight ball, right? You'd ask the eight ball, does she really like me? And kind of shake it up and look at it. Who had an eight ball? Did y'all? Okay. Just making sure I wasn't the only one that had a, 
eight ball. Um, but it was, it was as if that you're trying to find out what the future holds or what the truth is by consulting this piece of cloth or this wooden idol. It was used to consult spirits. It's not so much ignoring God, but it's substituting for God. It's displacing divine power with demonic power. I had a client who is, she would call herself a, a licensed witch. And, um, and she, she had all the garb that went with it and wore all the, the uh, regalia. And I remember calling her voicemail one time, and I got her voicemail, and I left a message. And, uh, but it said, blessings or bless you, and left her name. And I remember thinking, she's a witch, and she just said, bless me. And the only time I hear bless you is, the Lord bless you. And then it hit me. She substituted demonic power for divine power. She's saying, may Satan bless you. That's in essence what she's saying. And that's exactly, whenever we don't obey God, whenever we obey ourselves, it's saying that that's exactly what we're doing. We're following some other God rather than God. We're following, not following God Almighty. We're following our gods that we make in our own image. He's saying it's divination. And you also see here, I want you to look at verse 15. Verse 15 really is an interesting verse because it reveals something about the heart. Jeremiah 17, 9 says the heart is sick. Who can understand it? It's desperately sick. It's dark. And this is a little bit of an understanding of our human heart. And this is true whether, you're, whether you, are, uh, you're, you don't know Jesus or you do, is that we all have idols. It's not if, it's just where. And we protect our idols. We become the bouncers for our idols, right? We, we, we're our bodyguards, the bodyguards for our idols. In verse 15, it says this. Um, when, when Samuel came to him and he said, what is this sound? the bleeding of the sheep in my ears and the lowing of the oxen I hear. Because, you know, all, everything's supposed to be dead, but yet I'm hearing some animals here. This is incredible. I, I, I love how this prophet went about this. So poetic and yet so piercing. And he says in verse 15, Saul said, they have brought them from the Amalekites, for the people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen for sacrifice to the Lord your God. Now, let's stop there. It says, we're looking at protection there's three ways that we tend to protect. The first way is we tend to shift blame. Notice he says, they brought them. He's talking about all of his warriors. He's saying, they brought them, not, not me. They, they did it. Well, who's in charge? I thought the buck stops with you. But he's, he's blaming the, the, the other, he's blaming the soldiers, saying they did it. It's no different than what Adam did to Eve. He's saying, hey, you really blame God and Eve. He said, it's this woman that you gave me. It's her fault. And then she said, well, it's not really my fault. It's his fault, pointing to Satan. And then Satan didn't mind taking the blame. He enjoyed it. But that's exactly, that is the sin we tend to do. We tend to shift the blame to someone else and say, it's not my fault. I didn't do it. They did it. Or I wouldn't have done it unless they did this. All of us do it, whether you're five years old or you're 95 years old. The second thing we do after shifting the blame is we spin. We, we become spin doctors, right? We, we change it. 
If you look there, he said, uh, they, they brought it from the Malachites. The people spared the best of the sheep and the oxen for sacrifice. So he just spent it and just said, well, yeah, well, they, they, it's for a good reason. They're, they're going to sacrifice, right? That sounds good. But a little bit later on, in verse 19, uh, Samuel said, Why did you not obey the voice of the Lord? And why did you pounce on the spoil and do what was evil in the sight of the Lord? Well, that phrase, why did you pounce on the, the, the spoil? If you, if you look back in chapter 14, in verse 33, it said the same thing. It uses the same phrase. It says, or 32. It says, They struck down the Philistines from the day from Mishmash to Alahalon, and the people were very faint. The people pounced on the spoil and took sheep and oxen and calves and slaughtered them on the ground, and the people ate them with the blood. So that phrase means that the people in chapter 15 really weren't doing it to sacrifice. They were doing it because they were hungry. They saw a cow and they, they saw a prime rib. They were looking at the value it brought them. They were thinking, maybe I could sell that whenever I get home. These are the spoils of war. They weren't doing it to sacrifice. This is spin. And we spin our sin to look much better than it really is. So we shift blame. We spin. Last thing is we shade. Um, we overemphasize. Uh, if you look at the last part of chapter, uh, verse 15, he says, um, I want to sacrifice to the Lord your God and the rest we have devoted to destruction. So he's highlighting, he's shading um, and, and highlighting something he did that was obeying God, right? Which was devoting a certain amount to destruction. But he's, he's minimizing what he didn't do. And we do the same thing. We shade the truth. And parents, we see it in our children. But let that be an opportunity to be the two-by-four in your own eye. Because we do it too. And maybe we don't have a parent questioning us. But I guarantee if you did, you would squirm just as your child does. You would spin, you would shift, and you would shade the truth because you're protecting your idol. You're protecting your life that you want. Well, let's look at some application here. This is an opportunity for you to, to, to take some inventory. So I said this, that it's not if you have idols, it's where you have idols. I would recommend to you, if you want a good inventory, uh, Tim Keller has a commentary on the book of Galatians. It comes in a notebook form, and it has a good, in there, a good article on reading that and, and, and a worksheet of, of taking inventory of the idols in your heart. And do that not alone. Do that with a group of people that you trust and are safe with. So I'd recommend that. I would also say take a fear inventory. The book I, I reference when people are big and God is small, I'd recommend that to you to read. Take a fear inventory. What are you fearful? Or really, who are you fearful of? And the last is to see Jesus. Colossians says, Him we preach in all things that we may present others perfect in Christ Jesus. So we need to see Jesus in this. Saul failed as a king, but we have a king who was obedient to the point of death, who feared Jehovah, who had no idols, <clears throat> but worshiped the one true God. And let me tell you, Jesus is coming back with a drawn sword. When he comes back, he's not coming back in mercy. He's coming back to bring justice. And if we don't preach that, that's half the gospel. He is coming back like Saul was supposed to rout the Amalekites. 
Jesus is coming back to rout all those who don't love him and cast them into hell. And that should motivate us to share Christ with others. That should motivate us to have a broken and contrite heart before him because the same one who's bringing the sword is the same one who can save us from the sword. We, we read that earlier t- today, the backsliding. Reread that. It's in your bulletin. Because we often try to do spiritual things on our own strength. That's as bad as what Saul did. But King Jesus is coming back. That that is good news indeed. Let me pray for us. Father, thank you for being the king who obeyed the voice of Jehovah. Who had no guile in him. Who had no idols. Just as Samuel's robe was torn... And just as the kingdom of Israel was torn from Saul, you were torn. You were beaten. You were separated. You were torn from your father so that we didn't have to be. Thank you for that, Jesus. I pray that we would not put too much stock in earthly leaders. We would put all our hope in you. We would hold rightly our earthly leaders, knowing that they are frail We would not trust them fully, even as we would not trust fully ourselves because we all have one thing in common, and that's darkened hearts. That you are making brighter and lighter, hopefully every day, Lord Jesus. But I pray you would search out. Search me and know me, see if there's any hurtful way, and show us the idols and fears and the disobedience in our life, God, that we may repent of that, and turn to you in your name. Amen.